Real people. Real opinions. Real Talk Radio. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan Show. My guest tonight is a gentleman by the name of Harvey J. Graff. He's a professor of Emirates of English and History in the inaugural Ohio Eminent Scholar in Literacy Studies at the Ohio State University. Joining the OSU in 2004, he created and directed the Literacy Studies at OSU, uh, Interdisciplinary University-Wide Initiative, until 2016. Previously, he was a professor of history and a member of three doctoral faculties at the University of Texas in San Antonio. And he joins me now to discuss book banning and the resistance to it. And, of course, the big talking point at the moment here in Ireland, which is censorship. Uh, good evening. I should probably should say good afternoon, because I think it's probably afternoon where you are, Harvey. Well, it's actually, it's dinner time, so evening is close enough. <laughs> okay. Um, let's talk about <laughs> banning books. And I'm going to read a little piece uh, from the paper here in Ireland recently, right? And, and this will kind of okay. lead us into it, okay? And this is from one of the Irish newspapers, and it says, A councillor has filed a motion with Mead County Council calling for books to be removed from the curriculum. The Mead County Council called on the Department of Education to remove all literature from school curriculum that casually and repeatedly uses offensive racial terms. The books that he's referring to, by the way, are To Kill a Mockingbird and Of Mice and Men. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with both of those books by Harper Lee and John Steenbeck. Yes. Um, both those books, um, I suppose, talk about the Deep South. They talk about slavery. They use racial slurs. And they wanted them removed from the curriculum from schools because of you know, racial undertones. Um, and many people argue and say, hold on for a second, this is history. So when did this, you would be a better judge of all this, when did this book banning or book burning all start? I'm assuming it was for religious reasons. Um, actually, let me give a quick word, word of context. I am wearing, um, I, I dressed for my interviews and my lectures and things. My T-shirt says, read banned books. And beside me, I have another shirt that says, I'm with the band, B-A-N-N-E-D. And a third <laughs> one that um, says, celebrate freedom. And they all have lists of books that have been attempted to be banned at one time or another, including the two you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Book banning is, is as old as writing. It even precedes printing and books as we know them. It is an expression of power and the context in which power occurs. Um, people try to ban hieroglyphics, cave painting, depending on one tribe or one kingdom or one religious faith against another. It cannot be separated from contests of power. If we take a long view, and I'll I'll do this briefly because our concern is with current events internationally, Um, over time, beginning with with probably the most famous historical moment when the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church tried to ban the writings of Martin Luther and other who were then seen as radical Protestants. And Protestant, of course, is a form of protest. Mm -hmm. The Catholic Church also tried to suppress the Greek Orthodox and Eastern Orthodox churches. What's important 
And this is echoed again in major book banning in the United States in the late 19th century associated with Anthony Comstock, who was postmaster of New York State, then the U.S. federal government. That's a presidential appointment. Um, He ran a commission in New York State called the Committee to Suppress Obscenity. Obscenity to Comstock and his followers was information available publicly about birth control, contraception. Mm. Yep, so that happens here, by the way, too, in Ireland. It's it's international. Yeah. Um, of course, that was a time that abortion in alleys was one of the major forms of birth control with an extraordinarily tragic high rate of maternal mortality. Um, but we go from religious um, oppression and contest to control of human bodies. Um, the now humorous period of the 1950s and 60s that started in the United States but quickly leaped over the Atlantic with what we sort of call banned in Boston. Um, this was banning works by blacks, um, to, not to catch a mockingbird, um, oh, of, of yeah. um, make your comments and, and critics. Um, I'm, I'm blocking on names, but um, mm. um, Catch-22, things that are now largely because they're the, the writings of mainly straight white men are no longer subject to banning. What's critically new, and it's another way of answering your general question, since in the United States, since 2020, is that the bit, the book banners no longer read what they want to ban. I have called them in some of my essays the new illiterates. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no evidence, for example, that the notorious American group, um, they call themselves Moms for Liberty. I have renamed them Moms Against Liberty. There's no evidence they've opened the cover of a single book. Um, a parallel event, also copied internationally, was a Republican legislator in Texas, not surprisingly, who had his office staff do a Google word search of book catalogs. They came up with a list of 850 books that they wanted to be investigated. Um, I actually printed out a copy um, and looked through it. You know, anything with the word, you know, gay or race or queer, even if those words had a totally different meaning. So we're in a fundamentally new historical period today when the banners don't even bother to have their secretaries or maybe their college-aged children read the books and tell them what's within it. Um, I mean, I, I was always a firm believer, sorry for interrupting, but I'm always a firm believer that we should never ban any books or censor any books. 
And we should always make sure, particularly when it's, we're talking about children, that they're age appropriate. In other words, if we believe a book is not appropriate for an eight-year-old in school, but is appropriate for a 15-year-old, well, that's fine. Just make sure the 15-year-old only has access to it and the eight-year-old doesn't. And, and the same would go with books yeah. that might have might be graphic in any shape or form. But the problem, I right. think, is... Yeah. yeah, sorry, go ahead. Let me amplify just what, what, what you're saying. Um, the evidence from teachers, psychologists, historians, others who are familiar with young people is, as a 22-year-old undergraduate friend of me said in my dining room two months ago, he says, when I was eight years old, if I was reading a book that didn't feel right, I just put it down. Um, the age appropriateness is important. I would argue that a trained, certified, experienced librarian and educator should make decisions rather than parents who haven't opened the cover and are repeating what they've been told in the United States on right-wing, highly effective, social media and websites by people mm. who haven't opened the book. Um, the, evidence, the evidence that I point to constantly in these discussions is it's totally conclusive and there's testimony by people of all persuasions that confronting, reading, challenging or controversial or difficult texts is fundamental to social, cultural, individual, and intellectual maturity. We have testimony from very conservative people that reading potentially offensive literature at 8 or 12 years old helped them clarify what they wanted to be. And the groups like Mothers Against Liberty are basically saying, I won't let my children grow up. And I suggest that they have I don't. I don't, I don't know whether I necessarily agree with that. Now, don't get me wrong, I don't agree with everything that the likes of Mothers Against Liberty. And I know Donald Trump met them yesterday. I don't agree with everything they would have to say. And we have groups similar to that here in Ireland as well. Um, I think for many of them, uh, the core is child, well, they believe is child protection. And, uh, you know, I think yes. every parent has a right as a guardian of a child to decide how quickly they want their child to grow up or what their child is capable of, you know, what information they're capable of taking in without it doing any harm to them. So and I think parents' groups are very important, you know, as well. Now, you are right. A lot of them, by the way, will look at information on social media and think that that's fact and it might not even be in the bloody book. Um and, and I think you're right, a good, libra a good librarian should be able to decide that it goes in the adult section or it goes in the kids section or it goes in the infant section. A good librarian should be able to deal with that and, and sort that out. Right. But I, I do believe, I would be a firm believer. I, I don't want an eight-year-old. Well, 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 let me give you one example because it's going on here at the moment in a, a library in Cork in Ireland. There's protests on a regular basis over books which give instructions on how to uh, do pickups if you're gay or have sex if you're gay. or And local residents or local parents are concerned that it's in the wrong section in the library and it should be in an older section. But I, I do understand parents' concerns that some stuff, as far as parents are concerned, is not appropriate for an eight-year-old child. Right. Right. 
it's a very tricky balance, in part because we're debating, spending way too much time and energy debating about which section of the library. Um, what's being forgotten, and this, I admit, complicates matters, is that across the Western world and in some parts of the non-Western world, we spent the whole course of the 20th century establishing legal rights for young people. Did children have rights to grow up that sometimes conflict with their parents? And the whole movement to ban books and to take over the curriculum in the United States, the tragic but humorous example is the attack on the 1619 Project and the substitution by the Trumpists, the 1776 Project. There's a right-wing 1619 Project. America began when the Puritans landed at Plymouth Rock and ignores the fact that those Puritans killed Catholics, white English Catholics, and other Protestants as well as indigenous peoples. Um, we also have in Texas the 1836 project. Um, America began at the Alamo, but in the 1836 curriculum, there are no Mexicans in the Mexican-American War, <laughs> and the Texans won the Alamo, but they didn't. Um, so the, the political currents intertwine in contradictory ways. I think we, we cannot forget the rights of kids, and they have to be considered alongside and in relationship to parental rights. Um, I get what you're saying, and I think we could come to a happy agreement in relation to that, but let me just move on to a wider issue. And, of course, the wider issue at the moment is social media, which essentially is literature in, in a way. It's digital literature that we're seeing. And we're also seeing this kind of push towards um, banning what they call misinformation or disinformation. Now, as we all know, yes. you know, many scientists of the past and historians of the past, uh, going back centuries, would have been accused of misinformation and disinformation who turned out to be right. I mean, that has happened throughout history. So it's very difficult for one individual to decide what is misinformation and disinformation. And I find we're heading into a very dangerous territory. I don't know about America, because you've got the First Amendment, particularly here in Europe, where we have digital, the Digital Rights Treaty in Europe, where you have three people in Ireland, literally, who will decide what we're allowed to see and what we're not allowed to see, be it about climate change, be it about COVID-19, be it about governments, or whatever it happens to be. And I, I think we're heading into a very dangerous territory where we're, we're banning literature because three people don't think it's factual. We are already, I'll take a step further, we are already in dangerous literature. Um, it, you know, all of this, and this is what makes it hard for it to be discussed across lines. I mean, in the background is we've lost a sense of a common policy um, that we once had in part. There, there was never a golden age. But um, can all media printer or other be allowed to propagate freely or do we need certain community-based um, carefully established means of monitoring 
The First Amendment in the United States does not protect calls to violence or hate speech. Um, Mm -hmm. The right wing side of free speech forgets that. Um, you know, to, be fair, right to be fair, to be fairness, Harvey. Be, to be fair, I have seen people on the left use equally hatred words or hateful words. Yes. You know, yes, this is true. And um, if we, it's less common on the left for what that's worth. I say that as a historian. Okay, but you're yes, you're right, and uh, we do not talk to each other. And, and as a retired university professor who taught for almost 50 years, I hold education at all levels, partly responsible for these issues. Um, We have not done our due diligence. Um, In fact, tomorrow I'm participating um, by Zoom in a forum on public scholarship where I will discuss some of these things and what I see as a responsibility of professors in the classroom, but taking their expertise outside, beyond the classroom. Mm-hmm. But another side that makes it even more complicated is the challenge in France and Scandinavia right now, in particular, of trying to ban the Koran. You know, the lines are inextricably intertwined. And no one is, except a few of us scholars and evening radio hosts, is calling for let's slow down and actually talk. What I find powerful is that in the United States, and and I see some evidence from parts of Europe as well, young people are now forming band book reading groups on their own initiative. Um, they're coming together in protest to sometimes parents as well as school boards who are telling librarians and teachers what to teach and what not to teach. Um, they're taking an initiative that gives me some hope um, for the future, just the way the young people who are publishing books. I published an essay in Publishers Weekly Two months ago, celebrating, I call them my young heroes who write to change the world. Some mm-hmm. of them are as young as eight years old, but they include um, people like Greta Thunberg and Malawi, who published books before they were 20, using their rights, and people attempted to ban them. So, I mean, we have to defend free reading, writing, speaking. In all and and, and I, I was going way. to I, well okay so now you've just used the word responsible, but who decides what's responsible and what's not responsible? Your version of responsible say may be different to my version of responsible, because I you might do a you might write a book tomorrow say for example on I don't know climate change the Holocaust whatever it happens to be, and I might say that's irresponsible or I might say that's responsible where you might have an opposite view. So who decides what's responsible writing? Because Let's say, for example, um, climate change, which is one of the biggest issues in the world at the moment. There are people out there who don't believe that human beings have an effect on the climate, and they tend to get deplatformed on a regular basis when it comes to media. 
I, I don't think it'll be too far away when we see a situation where we have what we call the Ministry of Truth. Um, people deciding well, we're not going to allow those opinions because we consider that to be misinformation because you're disagreeing with some scientists. Now, that to me is irresponsible because I believe their information, although it may be incorrect, is equally as important as somebody who's promoting uh, the narrative of um, human beings are responsible for the climate. I believe both, both sides of that argument should be listened to by everybody. If you don't agree with it, that's fine. But, but the problem is, who deci- going back to what you said, who decides what's yeah. responsible? Okay, there are, we can look to arrangements over time to see different ways of doing that. Um, for most of the 20th century, among academics, there were ways of having judgment by peers that worked not all the time, but much of the time. That system has partly collapsed. It's not what it was when I started my my graduate career and my teaching career in the late 1970s, but it helped to some extent. We can have if we can get the different sides in the same forum to present their evidence to a knowledgeable public, um, the climate deniers, as they're they're called, um, will not debate with the scientists. The maybe it, well, maybe it's a case they're not allowed. Maybe it's a case they're not allowed to, in most cases, because they're dismissed. There, there are many um, there are many people who, and I speak of friends and colleagues who are climate scientists, who would welcome the opportunity to sit down and actually engage others and ask them to explain their positions mm-hmm. and present evidence. All good scientists and all good scholars, and journalists used to be this way, but they are not anymore, understand it opinions and consensuses change over time. Uh, People did not want to believe Charles Darwin. People did not want to believe Linnaeus in his gardens in Uppsala, Sweden. We can go back more centuries. Um, Things change. One of the highlights of my own life was spending a week in the Galapagos Islands um, where there are still 200-year-old tortoises that Darwin may have seen their parents. but, and I say this as a considered judgment with evidence on my side, the deniers, whether it's COVID or history or climate, are much less willing to actually professionally engage the other side. Um, there are loud voices on all sides that give each side a bad name. But as a scholar, it's part of my job to weigh the different situations. And I I have a a lunch group of partly retired and partly active Mm -hmm. environmentalists um, who include English and humanities people. We have one environmental historian. We have one evolutionary biologist. We have one geoscientist. Can I I ask you a question? And I'm sorry, it's because I'm a little bit rushed for time and I've got about four or five minutes, but I want to ask you a question. 
Should I, if I wanted to, not that I would ever believe it, by the way, but should I be allowed to bring out a book tomorrow um, denying the Holocaust? Um, not that I would, no, not that I would ever not. do that because I believe I would believe it's a horrible thing to do, and I and I don't deny the Holocaust. But I'm just asking it for example: yeah. Should I be allowed to bring out a book explaining why I deny the Holocaust? Um, in my judgment, as a historian and seventy-four-year-old person, I would say no because there is complete and overwhelming evidence absolutely and consensus by everyone um but it's it's a well, see, but the, but the point no the point the reason i asked you that question is is because i would never pick up that book to read it because i don't believe it of course right and like you right. i would think it was disrespectful to six million people who lost their lives but in saying that and if you, I, I i don't believe i don't believe it should ever be banned sorry um here we need another program to define different forms of uh, banning and limitation. We have a state elected state representative in Ohio, homeschooled, no college, who has argued publicly, you need to teach both sides of the Holocaust. And she follows that by saying, after all, only 300,000 Jews died. Um, she it repudiates herself by saying only 300,000 when no one disputes 6 million Jews and 3 million Gypsies and Hungarians and Romanians. Mm -hmm. I'm of Jewish descent, and I look to the total, not only the murdered Jews. But so, but but the, 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 no, sorry, the only to, point I was making is, and I, and I don't want to go too deep to people, I'd love another longer conversation with you. But the point I was trying to make is, as much as I would be appalled by it, you would be appalled by it, as particularly that you have Jewish descent, and many Jewish people would be, of course. But in saying that, I still, I still believe, I still believe these things should be available, because I was always a believer. The same when it comes to media and radio and talk show, that I had people on the air over the last thirty years that I've been doing this, who were apparent horrible people, who've said abhorrent things sure. and horrible things. But in saying that, I believe it's important that we see people for what they are and that we understand the arguments so that we learn from the badness. And, I, you know, and I, by banning or censoring, I think we never learn. And that, that's just the point I was trying to make in relation. In principle, I agree with you. And I would say put them on the air, debate with them. Put them in front of an audience, debate with them. But putting a book that has a kind of autonomy um, or putting it on, for example, in the United States and probably in Ireland too, totally uncontrolled right-wing social media where people never even get a suggestion that this is highly atypical, controversial. Um, see, uh, scholars and, and good students, and probably you, as you were educated in your career, look things up. We used to go to the library, now we Google. Um, people as in the United States, the greatest group of right-wing dominated people 
undereducated, non-urban people who are terrified because right-wing social media bombards them with saying, you are becoming an oppressed minority. All those other kind of people, particularly people of color, are out reproducing you. That's one of the ways I feel education, in, at least in the United States, but I know in Britain mm-hmm. as well, um, where I, I publish regularly in Times Higher Education. I skim the Guardian in the morning, um, and I talk to, to, to people around, around the world about these, these things. And, and I, 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 I'm, I'm sorry to, to cut you short, but I do know there are numerous amounts of people online who garner support through hate. And there is no doubt about that. Yes. Um, and, and they garner yes. support to making up stories to make people believe a certain narrative. And I'm, I'm not denying that for a minute. And by the way, again, I say to you, because I'm kind of centrist in some way, um, I would say that's both mm-hmm. on the right and on the left. But you would you would obviously say it's more to the right than it is to the left. I've, I've seen hatred on right. both sides. But I, but, not, but I tell you what, I listen, not, I, I would sorry? not deny the left. Yeah. I would not deny, deny some complicity on the left. I would love to have a longer conversation with you. It's been a very interesting conversation, um, and maybe well, we could do it again. Maybe we could do it again I'd sometime. I'd like to and, do that. Could, yeah. Could you have someone on, on your staff send me a link to to this? Yes, absolutely. So no problem share. at all. I, we we should and, do that. Um, part, my younger brother is an internationally known rock music journalist, and he's just delighted that I'm that I'm on cla- Irish cuff classic hits. <laughs> he's glad you're on Irish radio. Have you ever been to Ireland, by the way, Harvey? I, yes, yes. I love Dublin. Um, I have a picture of the library in Trinity College that I'm looking at on my study wall. Beautiful. And Harvey. my wife and yeah. I spent a, a glorious summer driving up the west coast of Ireland, sampling different smoked salmon in every county on the west coast. And I'm sure you sampled a pint of beer in every county as well. Um, not so often. More often <laughs> scotch. And next time we can talk about the fresh scotch on the outer islands in Scotland, another one of my passions. Um, Listen, or the 11 o'clock parade of the penguins in the Edinburgh it's been lovely talking to you, Harvey, and I'm sorry we had to cut it a bit short, but when I make sure they will send you a link, and I will be in touch with you, and we'll have a longer conversation, okay? Thank you very much indeed. Real people, real opinions, real talk radio, the multi-award winning Niall Boylan Show. Oh,